Breadbox Media Programming is brought to you by... Introducing the redesigned CatholicSingles.com, featuring new ways that put the spotlight on the person and their faith, not just a profile picture. For the past 20 years, faithful Catholics have used CatholicSingles.com, and the reimagined CatholicSingles.com website is ready to help single Catholics take the next step in sharing meaningful relationships with other faithful Catholics. Remember, CatholicSingles.com, for faith, fellowship, and love. To Hilaire Belloc's Characters of the Reformation. I'm Father Dwight Longenecker. In this episode, we consider Queen Elizabeth I. Queen Elizabeth. The interest of Queen Elizabeth to the historian is mainly biographical, but it has also the interest of a myth. The interest is mainly biographical because she was of very little effect upon the history of her time. We do not find any great political events produced by her will or her intelligence, and there is nothing important in the Europe of her time or the England of her time of which we can say, this was done by Elizabeth. But the woman herself is so interesting, not only as a pathological case, but as an example of suffering and intelligence combined, of a warped temperament and all that goes with it. The reason of this is due to the presence of that other interest in her character, the myth. What may be called the Elizabethan myth is now only beginning to break down. And it was during the 19th century an article of faith in England. It is one of the most perfect modern examples of its kind in all the range of history. It is a sort of creative and vital falsehood radiating its effects upon all the details of the time and putting in the wrong light pretty well everything that happened. The Elizabethan myth may be stated thus. In the second half of the 16th century, England had the good fortune to be governed by a woman of strong will, powerful intelligence, and excellent judgment, whose power was supreme. Her people adored her, and produced in her time and largely under her influence the greatest figures in every sphere, literature, architecture, foreign politics, and the rest. She chose her ministers with admirable skill, and they served her with corresponding faithfulness. In consequence of all this, the great queen led the nation through paths of increasing prosperity. They grew wealthier and wealthier as her reign proceeded, more and more powerful abroad, founding colonies and establishing that command of the sea which England has never since lost. In religion, she wisely represented the strong Protestantism of her people, in hatred of which a few venomous rebels, shamefully allied with foreigners, attacked her reign and even her life. However, she easily triumphed over them all and died full of glory, leaving her name as that of one of the greatest of English sovereigns. There, in brief, is the Elizabethan myth, and a more monstrous scaffolding of poisonous nonsense has never been foisted on posterity. And I use the word poisonous not at random, not as a mere epithet of abuse, but with a full sense of its accuracy. For this huge falsehood, which might be merely absurd in another connection, has had, applied to English history, all the effect that a poison has upon a living body. It has interfered with the proper scale of history, it has twisted, altered, and denied the most obvious historical truths, and has given Englishmen, and even the world at large, a very false view of our past.' 
The truth about Elizabeth is this. She was the puppet or figurehead of the group of new millionaires established upon the loot of religion that was begun in her father's time. They had at their head the unique genius of William Cecil, who, in spite of dangerous opposition, accomplished what might have seemed the impossible task of digging up the Catholic faith by the roots of the English soil, stamping out the mass, and shepherding a younger generation of reluctant people into a new religious atmosphere. In personal history, the truth about Elizabeth is that she was a woman of strong will and warped by desperately bad bodily health, almost certainly by a secret abnormality which forbade her to bear children. This wretched health, to which half a dozen times in her life she nearly succumbed, partly accounted for a mind also diseased on the erotic side. It is not a pleasant subject, and not one on which I can dwell at length in these pages, but it must be very strongly emphasized, for it accounts for all her intimate life, and all that was most characteristic of her from her fifteenth year. Her relations with men were continual, but they were not normal, and they were the more scandalous for that. Like others who have suffered the same tragic disease of perversion in mind and body, it seemed to increase upon her with age. Already within sight of the grave, and approaching her seventieth year, she was shamefully associated with one whom she had taken up with as a lad, a young fellow nearly thirty-three years her junior. Her intellect was high and piercing, she had real wit, very full instruction in many languages, and her will, in spite of perpetual rebuffs, remained strong to the end, though woefully impotent to carry anything into effect. No one chafed more or suffered more under the domination of others than Elizabeth, and no one has had to accept it more thoroughly. She had on this side of the intelligence and of the will only one weakness, but that so exaggerated that it was hardly sane. She insisted upon flattery, and particularly upon flattery which was so exaggerated as to be absurd. She certainly was not taken in by it, but she seems to have had a manic appreciation for it, liking it the more she knew it to be absurd. And when she had long been dried up and wizened, with a skin like parchment, already old, but looking a far older ruin than she was, she insisted upon her flatterers addressing her as though she were a woman of great beauty in the bloom of youth. In fact, Elizabeth was never beautiful, and after the age of thirty she became repulsive. In that year she lost all her reddish hair through an illness and had to supply the loss by reddish wig. Her complexion had never been good since the first years of her youth, but she carried herself with dignity, and in spite of her physical disabilities, her energy and vivacity of mind certainly made her a good companion." so far from her reign being the foundation of England's modern power or anything of that sort, it was actually a period during which wealth was continually declining, towns shrinking in population, and land going out of cultivation. It is true that a race of bold seamen arose contemporaneously with her reign, but they were no more remarkable than the captains of other nations of Europe at the same time, and they nearly all bore the taint of theft and murder." There were slave traders and pirates, secretly supported by the powerful men of state. Elizabeth could not but feel the shame which their piracies brought upon her in the eyes of her fellow sovereigns, and yet she could not avoid taking part in the proceeds of their disgraceful business. 
For Cecil's principle was to let such men as Hawkins, Drake, and the rest of the pirates rob indiscriminately, to disavow them in public, to apologize their acts, and even compensate the victims in part, but to keep the gains of their misdeeds, much the greater part of which went into the pockets of the men who held political power, while the criminal agents themselves were left with no more than a small commission. The only military effort of the reign was in Holland. That was a ridiculous failure, and the only effort at colonization was the equally ridiculous failure of the colony of Virginia. In religion, Elizabeth inclined at first to that witty, cynical skepticism of the Renaissance, the spirit of which many intellectuals at the time accepted. She was ready, in youth, to adopt any outward conformity required of her. Calvinist as a girl, under the rule of those who were despoiling the state after her father's death, she was then quite ready to profess enthusiasm for the Catholic faith, as we have seen when her sister Mary was on the throne. As she grew older, she developed a certain measure of carefully concealed piety. Her private prayers prove that. It is a feature not uncommon in people who are tortured by some abnormality in their intimate life. It is, I suppose, a sort of refuge for them. Her mature sympathies were, of course, however vaguely, with the Catholic faith. All the great monarchs, among whom she wished to be counted as an equal, were struggling to maintain an old civilization of Europe, of which the Catholic faith was the creator and the supreme expression. Philip of Spain, the head of the Catholic movement, had saved her life. She had long respected and depended upon him, until, in spite of her and in spite of himself, Cecil had turned him into an enemy. She tried hard for an understanding with the papacy. She detested the new Anglican establishment which Cecil had put up, and which, in spite of herself, she was the political head. It was one of those very few minor points on which she was allowed to have her own way, that she refused to call herself, as her father had called himself, vicar of Christ and supreme head of the church on earth. She detested the idea of a married clergy, and always refused to receive the wives of the new establishment of the church. She would, had she been allowed, have sent emissaries to the Council of Trent, and though, of course, the thing cannot be proved, and is pure conjecture, I have thought it certain enough that she would, in the case of a successful Catholic uprising, had the Catholic emigrants and their supporters been able to bring a sufficient force into England, have joined what was still the religion of the majority of her subjects, though cowed and terrorized by the reign of Cecil's government. The fall of that government would have indeed been a release for her. As examples of the way in which she was run by those who were her masters, I will take four leading cases out of a very great number of which could be quoted. First, she had personally given her royal assurance to the Spanish minister that the Spanish treasure ships bearing the way for Alva's soldiers in the Netherlands the ships which had taken refuge from pirates in English harbors should be released and the money taken under safeguards to their proper destination. Cecil simply overruled her. He ordered the money to be kept. Second, she desired to save Norfolk. Three separate times she interfered to prevent the execution, but she was overruled. That unfortunate cousin of hers was put to death, but his blood is not upon her head. It is upon Cecil's. Third, she tried to recall Drake just before the open declaration of war with Spain. No one thought of obeying her orders in the matter. Fourthly, the supreme example is the case of Mary, Queen of Scots. The murder, for it was a murder, was accomplished against her will. 
Our official historians have perpetually repeated that her agony at the hearing of Mary's death was feigned. That is false. It was genuine. The signing of the warrant had indeed been wrung out of her, but that did not mean that the warrant would be put into execution. It was put into execution in spite of her, in order that she should be made responsible, whether willing or unwilling. One might add to the list at any length, her paramour, Lester, did what he willed in Holland without consulting her, keeping a royal state which she flamed against impotently. Her later paramour, Essex, kept the loot of Cadiz, and defied without fear of consequences her bitter anger at finding herself deprived of her royal right to the proceeds of an act of war that was undertaken in her name. She never desired the death of Essex. It was Robert Cecil, the second Cecil, who was responsible for Essex's death. Not only would she have prevented it if she could, but one may fairly say that she died of it. And to what a death did the unhappy woman come? A death of madness and despair. The late Hugh Benson wrote a most powerful pamphlet contrasting Elizabeth's death with the holy, happy, and pious death of Mary, her sister. Elizabeth crouched on the ground for hours, one may say for days, refusing to speak, with her finger in her mouth like a baby, after having suffered horrible illusions, thinking that she had an iron band pressing around her head, and on one occasion seeing herself in a sort of vision as a little figure surrounded with dancing flames. She passed unannealed, unabsolved, and it is one of the most horrible stories in history. Nevertheless, we must admit in her way her greatness, a warped, distorted, diseased greatness, but greatness nonetheless. And it was under her that the monarchy of England began to fall to pieces so rapidly that within half a lifetime after her death, the rich taxpayers not only rose in rebellion successfully against the crown, but put their monarch, her second successor, to death. With that event, the beheading of Charles I, the old English monarchy came to an end, and it remained never anything more than a shadow of itself. This account of Elizabeth I reminds me of the movies that have been made about Elizabeth, uh, which only continue to perpetuate the myth. If you ever get a chance to watch them, uh, then I encourage you to do so, not because they're accurate, but because they perpetuate, as Belloc has said, this myth of Elizabeth as the great and marvelous monarch of England. I encourage you to go to my blog and read my blog post regularly, listen to my other podcasts. If you can support the work of this blog by being a donor subscriber, then I encourage you to do so. I also invite you to watch out for a new series that, I am, that I'm producing, which is called Renegade Priest. It's my attempt at podcast fiction. Thank you for listening. I'm Father Dwight Longenecker. Breadbox Media Programming is brought to you by Jack Kane Ford. Find your next Ford Tough vehicle at KaneFord.com. Woodhill Community Center. Have a hand in the heart of the city. Support their mission with your donations at WoodhillCommunityCenter.org. Toyota in Nicholasville Superstore. Online consultants are standing by right now to help you find your next Toyota. Visit ToyotaOnNicholasville.com. Lexus of Lexington. Home of the best-selling Lexus IS. Find yours today at LexusOfLexington.com.